Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello, welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Nicole. Hi. Today I'm going to be talking to the two of them about their job. Both of them are teachers, and we're going to discuss the ways in which teaching as a job faces struggles like any other, but also unique ones that make it more difficult in some ways. Yeah, that's probably fair. Would you say that, Nicole? Yes. Yeah. I would agree. We're recording this in light of news that Los Angeles's school district is preparing a strike. That That is correct. As of, um, as of a few days back, I believe... The UTLA, which is the teachers union in Los Angeles, has set a strike date of January 10th if the union's current demands are not met, which includes salary demands and contract demands like you'd expect any union contract to include, but also include a non-official demand that Los Angeles um, stop putting more students in charter schools. Apparently, the, the reason for this particular fight over over the union contract is that charter school supporters um, outright bought a majority on the LA school board. And the LAUSD is the second largest public education district anywhere in the country. The only larger one is the New York City uh, public school system. And what these charter school supporters have since done is they've supported this guy named Austin uh, Butner, Boatner, Boitner, Butner, I have no idea, for superintendent. And this guy is not an educator at all. He he has no experience educating. He is a political appointee of the highest order and has a very obvious mandate to privatize and charterize the LAUSD, which is particularly weird in light of the fact that one of his school board members has had to resign since. This is a charter school executive um, who had to plead guilty to a criminal count of conspiracy. One of the major charter schools networks in Los Angeles, its CEO just went to jail, and uh, ver- and and enrollment in charter schools is decreasing, and they have a huge reserve that they could spend on improving the quality of education in Los Angeles. But rather than doing that, they're apparently focusing on continuing to try to shrink public education and hand those services off to private companies. Los Angeles, though, it's probably the biggest one of these. We've seen a trend of teacher strikes over the past year, starting in West Virginia and Oklahoma. Arizona and Colorado followed them up. Do you see this as sort of something that's building momentum? Is this something we're going to see more often of? I think maybe in the future. I know in New York, and particularly in Rochester, our pay rate is a lot higher than other parts of the country. And I think that that really is contributing to it in other parts of the country because they're really, really grossly underpaid. And I mean, I know people down south and they have to have other jobs to supplement their income. In Oklahoma, we've talked about this on the show show before, they had an issue where state constitution prevented them from taxing the fossil fuel industry to the extent they needed to properly fund schools. And so they were operating under four-day school weeks, not out of, you know, this will be better for the students, but 
to cut costs. I've heard Rochester's actually talked about that recently as well. What hasn't Rochester talked about True. as a way to, <laughs> to change things and shake things up? See, I'm a little bit outside of this question because I'm a non-union educator, which means uh, that I get the benefits from union educators in my district because I get paid better and I get better benefits because my school feels the need to be competitive, but I'm uh, not able to strike or walk out or any of those things officially in my building. So seeing that wave of teachers standing up for each other and, and arguing for their dignity as workers and as educators was really inspiring. I think has also been inspiring to the wrong sort of people. Uh, just today, in the first day of the Arizona State Legislative Session, from what I understand, two representatives have attempted to pass bills that would make it actually illegal to do walkouts or strikes at schools. They What they've done is they've made it illegal for school to close, except during scheduled breaks or holidays, subject to a $5,000 fine. Now, I'd also seen there was a, a bill that would like prevent teachers from discussing controversial subjects in Arizona, sort of aimed at the Red for Ed movement and at this broader idea that right-wingers have that you know teachers are indoctrinating their students yes that that's definitely happening i think one of the successes of the teacher strikes in the past year is that they often happen in deeply red states west virginia and oklahoma in states where that sort of right-wing narrative about teachers unions often vilifying them should have had a stronger hold than it apparently did because those movements saw a lot of public support and oftentimes legislators who were opposed to these strikes lost in November, if not in their primary. Well, first of all, good riddance. And second of all, that was actually very gratifying to hear. I hoped that it would be the case because so often that narrative um, conflicts with the lived reality of the people in those states. But also, like I just mentioned, I'm a non-union educator and I work with a student population where Many of the people that I interact with on a daily basis, the reason they think I'm a good teacher is partly that I'm not union. So I, I work with the people who have bought into that narrative hook, line, and sinker. And to see other people reject it out of hand was, I mean, again, it was it was extremely encouraging. For me, I, uh, I work in a district that has a strong union backing. And for us, I think uh, it helps immensely with uh, the district and administrators not taking advantage of us as workers, um, not only in pay scale, but also like our work day or any other grievable issue. And then that ends up also filtering down to those of us who aren't in that union, because again, schools have to be competitive as workplaces. They will explicitly tell us we're doing this because this is the pay that unions have secured, or these are the conditions that unions have secured around this area. Now, when you talk about schools as workplaces, have you ever encountered a situation where the labor conditions are impacting the workers, whether that's a lack of resources or something else? I constantly have a problem with the lack of resources. I'm a visual arts teacher, so consumable supplies is a big part of what I do. And I'm at a building that is an arts-focused building. However, I have one of the worst budgets that I've had in my 13-year career at 13 different buildings. So that's a big one for me. Yeah. The subject I teach is not nearly as focused on that, but I can say over the last few years, I've had to make some investments into various things, app technological applications, office supplies, literally copy runs to a FedEx or whatever. Every year, the budget that 
my department has has shrunk, even while other departments that are perceived as more important, <clears throat> STEM, have gotten increases in their funding to accommodate more complex and more expensive things that our administration feels are, are necessary for them. Like those smart boards? Yes, I just got a, a, I think it's called a Triumph board. It's basically like a gigantic TV. Now, this was all grant money, so it wasn't money specifically out of my building's budget, but we have money for that and Chromebooks, um, but I can't get color, decent colored pencils and and that kind of thing. I spend an absurd amount of money out of pocket just because I feel that kids deserve to have mm -hmm. quality supplies to use. The other funny part is that my building is literally falling apart. So they've put up these boards and the ceiling is leaking in parts mm -hmm. of the building. So it's like they're not taking care of the building and it's in turn causing all these other issues to the technology that they're installing. Yeah. Uh, a good friend of mine said to me ages ago, you know, that he worked at a place that that dealt with kids with serious, serious learning disabilities. But he mentioned that a lot of places that uh, that work with these kids, they don't keep the building up to code. They don't bother to keep the physical plant uh, operating at, at a good level of cleanliness and functionality and so on. And this place spent a lot of its money and a lot of its volunteer labor from the staff on making sure that it looked clean and up to date and perfect because it made the kids want to be there. That was a big deal for them. And he mentioned, you know, some of these kids, this has its own problems, but he'd say some of these kids would walk mile, mile and a half to come to school. And no, they shouldn't have to do that. But the fact that they were willing to do that and that they wanted to be there, that shows how much taking care of your actual, just the, the brick and mortar matters. And w with us, I we usually do a pretty good job of that, I would say. I've, I've only had a couple problems now and again in eight years but definitely a lot of the more abstract things haven't been so great and just a random aside i love how these smart boards are always named in incredible greek mythological terms they're triumph boards or promethean boards or whatever the heck like i w i want a job naming these things because it it just sounds so uh self-aggrandizing to be able to name them. You would have loved going to school in Greece. You had talked about uh, volunteer labor, the things that teachers do that aren't you know, part of their job description, but nevertheless, they have to do to, in order to make a school function. Can you go into that a bit more? No, absolutely. I mean, I think, and this is one of the insidious things about teaching, that you have to do work that's not in the contract. There are many people for whom you can say, that's not, and, and many people for whose jobs we've discussed on this show, where a lot of their problems would go away if you simply told them, like, from now on, you only have to work to what's in your job description. Not all their problems, just some. But in teaching, you literally have to go above and beyond what's in your job description if you want to be good at your job. And one of the things that I think is, is most present as at least for me, in my mental state, is the constant feeling that it doesn't matter how much time I'm spending, it doesn't matter how much how little sleep I'm getting, it doesn't matter how much of my own money and time I spend outside the building trying to get things put together or trying to plan the exactly right lesson or whatever it is, I'm always going to feel like I'm just not doing enough. 
I does that I feel resonate? The same way, yes. Yeah, Building Matt now too has such a high expectation level. When I interviewed, they were kind of like, "Well, uh, this is uh, full time overtime, and it it really is the most demanding building I've ever worked in." But the kids are great, so it's worth it. But uh, the expectation level is definitely. High. Let me ask you a question, Nicole. So do you find that then when your students are great, that that gets sort of used against you when it comes to that administration, when it comes to that full-time overtime thing? Yes, I think so. But a lot of the administrators, a lot of the people in my building have only been there. So I think they have no concept of what it's like in other buildings in our district where it is a complete mess in other buildings as far as the kids and the discipline and consequences for actions so a lot of teachers in other buildings are to the point where they're very burnt out and the administrators are just, it's okay, just get through it, um, where my building's a little, little different. That's actually weirdly true for mine as well. Until very recently, we had a very strong culture of only promoting from the inside. And it definitely shows in that you get a lot of people for whom this is going to be the last stop. They're they're not going to be going anywhere else. And you can kind of see it in how they treat other people in the building, other teachers. It's, it's kind of like we have no conception that things could be going that badly because they've never gone that badly for me. Yes. Kind of thing. Yeah. They've never had that experience. So, yeah. so the expectation level is a little higher now when you talk about you know people not necessarily having been in those circumstances before just to go back to that la teacher strike one of the things they were talking about is having a superintendent who hadn't been an educator do you find that not having been an educator poses an obstacle to you know being an administrator Uh, yes (laughs) i mean i think there's a lot of administrators that weren't educators for very long and they have no concept of what it's really like in the day-to-day it's a completely different ball game being an administrator than it is to be an actual teacher i almost broke my neck nodding at that a number of people that are responsible for telling me what to do have taught a lot less time than I have, and I haven't been teaching that long. So it, it's a little weird to be observed and commented on and, and administered in my teaching by somebody who's had fewer minutes in the classroom than I have had. And my discrepancy with them in that regard is only growing larger. And I'm not one of these people that thinks experience is the be all and end all. I think there are people who are, for lack of a better term, come into it with more of an inclination towards what good teaching is. And I wouldn't necessarily say I'm one of them. I think I I had a very rough time learning what that meant and not what I thought it meant. But sometimes I do think you look at what an administrator tells you you're supposed to be doing and you go, this person has no idea how to plan a lesson. This person has never had to come up with how am I going to coat this extremely boring point in something that's interesting for my kids? Because it's something that they have to learn, but it's not something that is inherently exciting. No teacher has ever had a class that was just raring to go over the investiture controversy between Gregory the Seventh and Henry the Fourth. you know? I was as a student, but again, I'm not teaching me. So I have to think about how am I going to frame these things? You definitely get different commentary from the person who's actually taught for a living versus the person who has taught less time than you have. Well, and so much of it is on the job training, like classroom management, for example, is so glazed over in college. And that is... I mean, you have to learn that as a hands-on thing. And administrators, that's a lot of what they're observing and what they're dealing with, you know, when they're watching you or when they're dealing with kids. So if you haven't had that hands-on experience, it's hard to, you know, 
know what to expect. Yeah, especially if you haven't taught a variety of things. A lot of administrators that I've come into contact with have taught either non-core subjects or they've only taught specific classes. And some of them will even teach a class while they're being principals or directors or what have you. And I think something they don't realize is that kids are not morons. They know that if you have a title, you have more power within your building and they will behave for you in a way that they maybe don't to somebody who has like two or three levels of people over their heads. So you often see them kind of have a, a very different view of how students can be yes. because they think they, they don't act up for me. They behave well for me. They don't do anything wrong for me. So if they're doing something for you, it's your fault. Yes, yes. And with me, I have such an unstructured kind of subject area and classroom that I think that they come in and they're expecting to see something different than what art is really going to look like. I think they just have no idea what I'm doing in the classroom. <laughs> I can just think back to being a student because I've never been a teacher is when the principal came in, you know, you were always on your best behavior because principal. some of my most, let's say, active classes, 72 point air quotes <laughs> around that. They, the moment they realize I'm being observed and that this isn't just a quick stop by, they will immediately just clam up. And more than once, kids that every other day, I do my best not to take it personally, but every once in a while you get the one person where you're like, uh, I don't know what's going on here. That kid has turned to me and said, you think we made you look good? You think we did it today? <laughs> And I'll be like, you know what? Thank you. I appreciate that because it at least means you're not trying to get me fired. That that matters to me because I don't have the due process protection. I can yes. pretty much be kicked off anytime. It's not only an obstacle, it's the obstacle because now what you have is districts and buildings realizing if you don't wait for the person to have a ton of experience, that also means they're younger. That also means they're cheaper. And so now you've got across this very county, you've got assistant principals and principals who barely hit 30 and who maybe taught five years, if that, because that's like the minimum you have to have taught to meet the requirements on the whatever the, the job posting is. So you've got guys getting chosen as principals and assistant principals who have taught less time than their teachers, but who have been told, and I know this because I've seen their course content in their administration degrees that your skill set is totally different from your teachers but you know better than they do what they're talking about and you are the visionary it is your job to lead them to the promised land and it turns out that this pseudo mosaic vision of administration doesn't really last long when you get in a room with a bunch of people whose main concern is how am I going to do this it's a practical thing their concern is very much about what's going to happen in the classroom not what your grand mission statement is that bit about wanting younger administrators because they're cheaper that's something that parallels a lot of other industries we've talked about you know having younger workers you can pay them less some of them are living with their parents or with roommates that's something we see in a lot of other industries and after this break we'll come back and talk more about about education. Hey, hey guys, you know that feeling you have at work, that dead inside feeling? Bad news, we can't really help with that. Good news, we can help you waste some time at work. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYO LP FM Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are.
Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah and Nicole. We've been talking about their work as teachers. Noah, I know one point you want to get across here is about the distinction between teaching as a calling, you know, that noble ideal that some people, you know, suggest it should be, and teaching as a job where you get paid for the work you do. Do you want to go into that now? Just a little bit. I think it's teaching as a job, like any other job, there are certain commonalities. Uh, As you mentioned right before the break, there are things that we've talked about just on this very episode that are the same no matter where you go. If you go into retail, if you go into food service, if you go into healthcare, whatever, those same realities obtain because we're in a hellscape of labor. But there are certain things about teaching that are supposed to make it not quite a job. And I would argue that we've been talking about the ways in which administrators take advantage of their teaching force. And I think in many cases, people are very aware of where that line is and they manipulate it to their own ends. Sometimes I think even teachers push that line to sort of say, well, here are the ways in which we don't have to be exactly like every other employee. But for the most part, it's a difficult balance to strike because being like other workers in many cases gives us protections that we would not otherwise enjoy. But in some ways you just have to bow to the realities of the fact that teaching, at least as we construe it here, is not like a lot of other genres of work. You can't just leave school at school necessarily. There's always something that you're going to have to do or bring home. It always makes me laugh when friends are like, oh, you just had that long break for Christmas. Well, yeah, but I also went to school to get things ready for an art show you that's coming up. You get summers off. You get summers off, but I do PD during the summer or lesson planning during the summer, which if you're taking a paid vacation you're not you know from any other job you're taking a vacation you're leaving work at work trying to trying to yeah Yeah. (laughs) i guess it depends on your line of work most people can leave work at work where teaching is not like that even other people who do have to leave or who do have to bring stuff home with them i don't think understand the level to which it's a necessity when you're teaching both of my parents did public relations for them that meant that their job basically had a 24-7 schedule. If they needed to be there at 1 a.m. to run an event because a client demanded it, they had to be there. There was not really a choice in the matter. Now, I don't have it quite that bad, but in some ways, my parents could expect that unless there was a defined reason for them to be doing something at, say, 9 p.m., they were going to be able to come home, have dinner, watch a little TV, and go to bed. And I don't really have that certainty, even if I'm not going to a game for a kid, even if I'm not planning out lessons or whatever it is. There will always be something that I am leaving undone at the end of the day and that if I don't do it at home will be the first thing facing me in the morning and that's just like a set reality of my day it's not something I can even come back which is very discouraging in some ways I always feel behind but when there is a break you know you feel guilty if you don't bring something home to do (laughs) guilt is some sort of the uh, motivating factor you've talked about how administrators or your bosses will guilt you into um, doing things? They'll use the kids. I have co-workers who literally wake up at 4 a.m. every day, go to bed at 12 midnight, catching four hours of sleep, and they've been doing it for years just so they can get everything done. It's like a Mark Wahlberg-esque level of scheduling to the minute where everything has to be done. You know, like they get this hour and a half of family time because that's all they're going to get, so they have to build it into the schedule. They have to make sure that they set that aside. 
died. Luckily, I haven't gotten to that point. But on the other hand, that's why I, to my bosses, am a lazier person than somebody else because I choose to take care of my dog and my spouse, literally put food on the dinner table, maybe do housework or whatever it is, or, you know, read a book every so often instead of spend my entire day pushing out grades and putting together some project rather than than spending any time on myself. I've encountered kind of the same thing and they do use the kids as, you know, we're doing what's best for the kids. We touched on <laughs> in the first segment, but you had a funny anecdote about it. There are a lot of places that will ask you to do literal volunteer labor except with a mandatory character that, that you'll be asked to help out at this, at this event or at this activity or what have you and you're not getting paid for it and it is considered volunteering you have to actually put your name and say I'm volunteering for this but it is considered a breach of your contract not to show up and not to do it. And it took me a while to figure this out because I came from a different place and with apparently very simplistic convictions about how labor worked. And I was like, then that's not volunteering. It's mandatory. And the response I got was, well, no, it is volunteering, but you have to do it. Around the third round of explaining what volunteering means, I did classics. I happen to know it comes literally from the root of the verb to want. It kind of hit me that this is one of these comforting things that we tell ourselves. Oh, it's volunteering because I'm putting my name down to and and I get to choose what I do right that makes it voluntary but it's definitely something that I'm going to be guilted into doing and then I am going to be forced through contractual means that are illegal to do that it just kind of puts into stark relief everything else that we've been talking about where we can't leave our work at our workplace because our workplace is literally saying well, not only are we going to require these hours out of you we're going to require extra labor out of you without telling you that we're requiring it does that ever happen in a union workplace um, is that not, even a not thing exactly they will ask us for voluntary things but because it's union you don't have to do it but it's kind of expected and especially where I am there's so many things and events that it's it's really expected now some of it for us is paid extra mm -hmm. but not all of it then let me ask you this because my workplace eventually just leaned in and made it part of the contract and so now it's like okay fair enough whatever right mm -hmm. did you find that then since they can't explicitly make it part of what you're expected to do do they lean harder than on the guild do they do they use the the social I mean, landscape a little bit yeah for example there was something last year it's auditions for our building and it ends up creating three 13 hour days in a row and well there's there's a head of the art department and then there's the arts administrator well the head of the art department for the building was like she made it sound very voluntary and we do get paid extra and I was like I don't really care I'd like to you know see my son sometime this week <laughs> since school starts earlier than he gets up and by the time I'd be getting home he'd be in bed so she made it sound okay and then the administrator came back after he found out I didn't do it and was like well, well why didn't you do it you should be there you should should be seeing these incoming students and making suggestions on who we're picking and laid that guilt on. So yeah, I've experienced it some. It's okay. just a little bit different in a union setting because I can't really force yeah. us. I go back to that scene in office space where you're required to have 14 pieces of flair. Oh, but yes. you don't yes. want to just do the bare minimum. You should really have 21, but it's not required. <laughs> and I think you said Jennifer Aniston says, so it is required. And he goes, you're not listening, <laughs> which is, I've heard that more than once when I've pointed out like the lexical content of the thing you just said is not the same as what you meant. We work in a setting dominated by doublespeak. 
I think. Yes. You you get all of these, uh, they say STEM, and what they really mean is Chromebooks, or they say project-based learning, and what they end up meaning is, you know, we're going to do this interdisciplinary thing where now you're going to have to be an expert on every other subject as well as your own, which has definitely come down the pike on my at my building a couple times now. And it's really unfortunate because I think a lot of our psychic pain comes from not being able to express ourselves clearly. We, we can't admit what's bothering us. I think ultimately what it comes down to is, so we're asked as professionals to put on a mask, and that is for good reasons. Because if you're in front of a classroom, they don't need to know, they don't want to know, and they shouldn't have to know how the rest of your day has gone. Which, you know, says something about how much actual agency we expect children to have, but that's neither here nor there. So that's a good thing, but it becomes a problem, I think, once you start expecting us to take on a job that is nearly entirely emotional labor and put on that mask and then hold on to it when you're dealing with people who should care and should know how your day has gone, who should care and should know what your... um what what the general tenor of your life is and you can't talk to them in any direct way because they hold power over you changing subject a little bit i wanted to talk a bit about charter schools you brought them up when talking about the la city strike and there's a reason that teachers unions oppose them and why charter schools tend to oppose teacher unions in return how do they make things more difficult for teachers i guess Nicole, it sounds like you might have some experience in this area. Um, I did work at a charter school my second year teaching. From my personal experience, they actually, it was, I think, the first or second year of this charter school, and they actually hired two separate visual arts teachers, one for uh, the morning sessions and one for the afternoon sessions, solely so that they didn't have to pay us any sort of benefits because we would not be Mm full-time employees. Um, I'm not sure if we were the only ones in the building that were like that, but I definitely felt taken advantage of because of that. And then they would spring things on us constantly, like all of a sudden the next day I'm teaching another class and I wasn't really given the resources I needed to be teaching the classes I was teaching either. I didn't have a sink, for example. So it was a difficult situation. (laughs) Now, what are charter schools exactly? What distinguishes them from public schools? Either you can. It can differ, but basically a charter school is a private educational organization that is taking public money. It, it has some, the, the charter in the name is it has an agreement with whatever its local governmental authority is, be it a city, town, state, whatever, to take a certain number of students for a certain amount of earmarked money from that local department of education. And it's supposed to, depending on where it is, it is supposed to provide education to a certain standard. Like there's, um, I know of a school in Massachusetts that was, it's a public charter school. It was founded by the town because they couldn't get their own school for whatever reason from the county or what have you. And they wanted an international baccalaureate school. So they just put one together, which I imagine it wasn't great for the teachers working there, but it was at least something that they did out of town interest as opposed to somebody coming in and saying we're we're going to create this uh um we're going to we're going to put this group of schools into different areas we're going to call them academies now <laughs> <laughs> yes or or uh what is it there was the children's zones or whatever which is weird yeah. Well, you had mentioned you you only work there a year, and I know one problem that charter schools face is they have a lot of turnover because 
of reasons like you mentioned, you know, there's not a lot of funding for teachers generally because part of their mission statement in many cases is to reduce the cost of labor by avoiding teachers' unions. And does that turnover, that sort of instability, how does that impact, you know, the ability to provide education? I mean, I would think it, it impacts the kids a lot. I know that at the charter school that I came from, they had, like, in the arts department, I had heard that they had quite a bit of turnover with the teachers. So, I mean, it's better for kids to have consistency. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This isn't directly related to charter schools, but it is related to turnover. Do you find that as a teacher or something that in many schools is an elective, do you find that they basically just give your subject short shrift? Like you don't get the, the respect that a STEM or an ELA type thing gets? Oh, yes. I mean, it took me forever to get a full-time job. Uh, it took me 13 years to get a full-time job. I was what they would call quote-unquote, a uh, part-time contract sub. I was not subbing for anybody, but I was a part-time teacher, um, so I was working half-time or 0. 0.4, 0. 0.2, or split between two buildings where mm -hmm. I'd be itinerant, and that is, wasn't uncommon until recently they've actually tried to straighten that whole system out, but I knew teachers that were working at three different buildings, some mm -hmm. of them traveling to two, maybe three in a day. Um, I was lucky enough that one year it was just every other day I would switch schools, but the other one I did travel every single day. And we've seen in a lot of these you know, southern states where the budgets for schooling is small. You know, a lot of teachers are working second jobs, not as teachers, but at, you know, like Walmart or just unrelated jobs that leave them even less time, I imagine, to do the labor of teaching and all that implies. Yeah. Well, you don't have to go that far. I've got co-workers who have side businesses, landscaping, painting houses, uh, or until recently then, a lot of them are older and, and can't really sustain physical labor anymore, but catering, things like that. Um, if they're not doing something educational on the side, if they're not tutoring or what have you, many of them would do that. I had a co-worker until very recently who was a master carpenter in his off time and would make and would do woodworking for, for people in our community because uh, that was where he could find an easy market, you know? I have to imagine something like that would probably pay better than his job as a teacher, if anything. Depends on where you are, probably, and, and what you're making. Um, it might, well, yeah, I mean, I definitely know people that have other side jobs. Um, my district pays a little better, so it's probably not as crucial, but... I yeah. definitely know people that, you know, to make ends meet. <laughs> yeah. It's it's particularly bad given the amount of... You mentioned that you do professional development even when you're supposed to be off work. And I know that most of the conferences and things that I've gone to have been over weekends or yes. in the summer when you're already not supposed to be at your job, you're doing your job. And for the amount, for the hours that we put in to become better at our jobs for the amount of training that we require. We really are some of the poor, mo some of the most poorly remunerated people in the country, which I think says a lot about sort of American culture when it comes to education. I have a friend who actually until recently was an itinerant teacher in, in a district around here and traveled to about three different buildings and taught music. Mm -hmm. So same, yes. same kind of idea. Art music. <laughs> but one thing we, we were talking about it, and a friend of ours who's a principal was saying, you know, people respect teachers. It's hard to pick a fight with teachers. And the point I made to, to him was, well, you know, people respect teachers in the abstract. 
in the abstract, they'll tell you that teachers should all be paid more or that they should have better working conditions or whatever. But as soon as they start thinking of the specific teachers that they have to deal with on a daily basis, especially in a building like mine, where instead of getting, you know, the problems that in a lot of places you get to or, or that kind of thing. In my case, it's, you know, you gave my kid a lower grade than you were supposed to and that kind of thing. It's, uh, they certainly don't have that respect in the concrete uh, sense. And I found it very interesting that my friend, who is a teacher, agree with that fully. And my friend, who is a principal, found this apparently the most mind-blowing thing he'd ever heard. <laughs> oh, no, I would definitely agree with that statement, especially when it comes to grades. You know, like I've had kids that I've had to fail and all of a sudden the parent like comes out of the woodwork and is like, what? Well, I'm sorry, but your son didn't do anything in my class mm -hmm. for the entire marking period. Yeah. Why didn't you contact me sooner? Mm -hmm. Although and I'm teaching a hundred and something kids. <laughs> See, and, and you guys at least are, are not tuition dependent, which yeah. when you are, it's even worse because then the, the old canard of my, I'm paying I'm, your salary, yes. you know, becomes even more relevant and true in that regard. So suddenly you've got... Uh, uh, you you suddenly run into this real problem where you know your administration at some point is going to have to bend because again you're not union and you literally have a person on whom you depend to stay open you had touched on the amount of time on tra you spend on training and these seminars but also like this is teaching is a job that expects you to have a degree and for a job that you have to go to college for you have to pay all the money college costs to then require a second job, I think is sort of, we can all agree that's sort of deeply unfair and messed up. Again, you can agree if you're not an administrator. I'm sorry to keep harping on yeah. this, but I've literally gotten in the line of like, well, that's just an income supplement. And I've been like, no, like one full-time job should be enough. That, that Especially was Especially with a master's degree. <laughs> yeah. And especially with a job that, as you said, Nicole, a job you don't get to leave at, at work. Mm -hmm. If it's something that you're working, if, if it's something that you take home, you should be paid for that time you're taking home. Like when my wife uh, had to work from home for a few days because her workplace was shut down by an act of God uh, last year, or I think it was two years ago, doesn't matter. Um, she was worried about how much time she was spending on it because she didn't... She had to make sure she worked the exact number of hours that she was supposed to. And meanwhile, I'm thinking, I could spend six hours tonight staying up, doing school stuff, and nobody would care. My administration wouldn't care. I, uh, and, and I certainly would be expected not to. So it's, it, it's, a, fairly, it's a fairly disturbing piece of, of labor math. The amount of hours we're asked to put into ourselves as employees and as good teachers, but then not as humans yeah i i would agree this has been you know 45 minutes or so about the things that make this job difficult and we're gonna try to finish the show after this break we're talking about how we can make it easier how we can make this better than it is currently you're listening to punching out on wayo 104.3 if you enjoy our show you can follow us on facebook and twitter at punching out wayo if you'd like to share your stories, you can email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Back to the show.
Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah and Nicole. We've been talking about their complaints as teachers about, you know, the labor conditions they endure to, you know, provide education to students. And we want to end the show now on a more hopeful note, looking forward to what can we do to remove those frustrations and make your jobs better? Um, I think for me, uh, if I was provided with all of the things I need as a teacher, um, being a visual arts teacher, we do have a lot of consumable goods. And um, when I started teaching, I remember them giving us things like Kleenex uh, and basic supplies, even like that, where now I'm buying Kleenex out of pocket and begging the custodian for paper towels. And I'm doing uh, projects through Donors Choose, which is a website sort of like GoFundMe um, for teachers where I'm coming up with projects and getting funding to get the supplies for, for my kids to do the quality of artwork that I'd like to see them what do. What sort of projects would those be? Um, like most recently I did one for my art club kids, which is not technically an art club. It's more of a required course for all the incoming seventh grade visual arts majors. Um, and I want to be able to do some of the things that I saw at the New York State Art Teachers um, Conference with them. So I created a project to be able to get some of the supplies that I saw and saw projects done with, but I would never be able to afford on the budget that I have right now to be able to do that with these kids and get them excited about art. Um, One of my last ones was actually just for Prismacolor colored pencils because I don't think high school students should be using the Crayola colored pencils that I would use with first and second graders to be completing pieces for their college portfolios. Um, So I think they deserve more. So I'm going above and beyond and spending my time to write these things up and, uh, you know, promote my project. Now you had mentioned that there there have to be like thank you notes and. Oh yes. So um, once your project's funded, you have a certain amount of time that to complete your project which you can ask for extension. Last year I had to ask for an extension because it was close to the end of the school year. So you have to take projects or pictures of the projects or of your students using whatever it is that you requested, and then um, the donors can request thank yous, and so you have to have your students write thank yous to the donors for um, funding your project. And I know a ton of teachers, especially arts and music teachers, that use donors choose consistently to basically fund their whole program. I, I did not think GoFundMe could get any more cursed, but <laughs> GoFundMe for teachers is the most cursed phrase. I'm, I'm not sure which one came first, honestly, yeah, but fair. we're becoming an economy that is exclusively based on GoFundMe to meet people's necessities. It, it makes perfect sense. It, it marries two great American economic obsessions the invisible hand of the market and like making people feel good by making them donate to things. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's the perfect marriage of, of two cultural currents, two great tastes that go great together. <laughs> that's what it is. So that, that's the basics, right? I, and I think even I don't teach a subject that has that many consumable supplies and I have a sink for some reason, <laughs> even though I don't teach anything that requires a sink, N- neither here nor there. But um, you know, for example, the next time I want to update a textbook or have a new textbook, 
I'm going to have to scrounge the money to pay for the first year of that. I'm not going to be able to do that through our meager budget. And certainly when I try to come up with any of these interesting things that I'm told I'm a bad teacher if I don't do for my kids, I have to figure out how am I going to save the most money doing this while still making it look like something my kids will actually enjoy doing. Just out of curiosity, how long would it go between you know first-year textbooks, so to speak? Oh, I've uh, the textbook I'm using right now, we've probably had in the building for about 15 years. Okay. Um, and it's not even a bad textbook. I quite like it, and the, and the kids quite enjoy it as well. But it's more the idea that if I wanted to change it, it would be an uphill battle. And over time, those things wear. Like yes. You give a textbook to high school students for 20 years, you know, mm-hmm. it'll show some use. Sometimes you're you're lucky if all of your kids have the first chapter in its entirety in there, which is weird, but, you know, uh, teenagers, right? Right. Um, so, absolutely, even, even coming from a subject that's not supply-heavy, I, I definitely feel the budgetary pressure. But what about less practical things? You know what I mean? Less concrete stuff? What? Because the reason I'm asking you, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but it's because I think my workplace is not going to be leading the way on this. My workplace will be responding to what workplaces like yours do. Well, one of the things that they actually did this year that our union fought hard for was um, to get rid of. Um, we had. I don't. Do you guys have to do SLOs? I don't even know what that is. Okay, so it's a student learning objective is what the acronym is, but it's basically like post-assessment testing. Oh, no. Okay, so we had to do, and it came down from the state, um, that we had to do this post-assessment testing. Now, ELA and math had this set thing that they had to do, but for visual arts, we were literally making up this ridiculous target score every year so we would have kids and we could do a pre-assessment or we could base it on some arbitrary thing or what they did in class and we had to come up with a a target that they would hit so a score that we thought like how much we thought they would grow over the course of the time Mm -hmm. that we had them um and for art it's very subjective so it's like you're kind of making up a target and then you're making up a score for their post-assessment because you're grading them on a still life drawing or something like that. So it was really the most ridiculous thing ever. And finally our union fought and they did away with us having to do these uh, performance-based assessments. But now our, our teacher score is based on their ELA scores um, for the same type of post-assessment. So I'd really love it if they would get rid of this, grading teachers that has become a thing that New York state has, you know, that they're trying to tie it into our, our pay, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they haven't gotten very far in actually getting anything approved, but so it's nice that I don't have to do all that extra work because it was an absurd amount of extra work for nothing. Um, but yeah, it's nice to know that you don't have to deal with that, though. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, we we got very lucky in that regard, though. So now what, what they've started doing is each year we've been asked... Uh, e- each year the language gets uh, harder around asking for student feedback. 
and uh, the clear implication is that within the next two years, it's going to be an actual thing that we're going to have to do. And it, the reason it worries me is I don't I don't mind asking my students, but number one, if unless your students are deathly afraid of you, you're going to get feedback. And also, I said earlier, kids are not morons. Teachers are not morons. We know when something hasn't gone well, unless we are complete, unless we are so self-absorbed that, quite frankly, we shouldn't be in the classroom in the first place. We know when kids are not reacting well to something we're doing. But even if we don't, kids will tell us. It's not, at least with my student population, it, it would be weird if I did something that was out of the ordinary and I didn't immediately get, uh, you know, out of a classroom of 15, eight immediately loudly stated opinions on how well or not that went. And I appreciate that. But my worry is that once it becomes centralized, it will then be evaluative. It will then be used to tell teachers, here's what you're doing wrong or here's what you're not doing right. Because let's be fair, let's be honest, uh, it will very rarely be used to tell you, here's why we're giving you a new contract. It will usually be dragged out when it's Here's why we're letting you go. But I'm sorry, I'm getting in the way of the positivity again. <laughs> it, and this might not help either, but... Oh, boy. I, I don't think because of your subject matters, you either you have to deal with, like, the standardized testing regime, but you might know teachers who do. And mm-hmm. Is that something you'd want to... Or at least, would they want to see it changed? I mean, I know it's a source of frustration I'm for sure them. I'm sure everybody wants to see it changed. I mean, even just doing my performance-based assessments, I was changing the projects I was teaching to kind of teach to mm-hmm. that test, okay. which, I mean, it was a drawing-based test, but I, I mean, I'm sure every teacher is kind of like that, where you don't want to have to be teaching to a test. You don't yeah. want to have to be confined like that. Mm-hmm. No, that that's absolutely true. I nobody nobody wants to teach to a standardized test. It, I think even people who wrote it, you know, like I have I I write some of my own exams each year, and I don't even want to teach to those. I I can't count the number of times I've thought, well, I have to teach this because it's going on the midterm, and I kind of go, it's my own midterm. I could just change that, but no, I can't because I've already handed it in and it's been printed out and it's in the office and and all of that stuff. Um. But knowing that, you know, there is going to be this assessment coming down the pike and and that it has more stakes than pretty much anything else they've done, it's, I mean, it's just a bummer for everyone. Your kids don't like it. You probably don't like it. And parents aren't going to like it. And administrators won't like it if the kids don't do well. So it's kind of, I don't understand who wants those. Well, part of the rationale, I think, has been that having these standardized tests becomes a way of, you know, measuring teachers. It becomes a metric Mm. by which they can evaluate your performances and inevitably use that to, you know, make cuts. Mm -hmm. No, that's fair. That, yeah. So, uh, positivity. Positivity. Um, what we, we've been talking about. So we talked about providing teachers with what they need and we talked about getting rid of stuff. Maybe here's a big one, and here's something that, uh, to bring it full circle, here's something that the UTLA teachers mentioned, and then, Nicole, you sort of mentioned uh, in the middle of something else. We just need more teachers in this country in general. We have, in, in districts like Los Angeles or New York or Detroit, we have teachers dealing with class sizes of 40 and 50 and 60, and it's not like 
educational research, some of which was done right here in Rochester, proved ages ago that the ideal class size is something like 15. Mm-hmm. So I would agree. Actually, <laughs> the uh, Rochester City School District reduced the class size for um, elementary to take half classes for art. So uh, it's maxed at 15 for visual arts for elementary. However, that all goes out the window for junior high and high school. And oddly, junior high, which is probably the hardest Mm -hmm. to teach, is the highest cap at 28. Which is, yeah, I've had 24 and 25, and I feel like that's too much, at least for an unstructured type Mm -hmm. of classroom, too, because there's just not enough... That's another thing. There's not enough time anymore. They're trying to cram more classes into less time, Mm -hmm. um, where, for example, for elementary, it used to be five classes for art. Now it's seven, and they're Mm -hmm. shorter, um, which makes you have to prep more as a teacher. Yep. So... I think that's another thing. Everybody's everybody's kind of having to run around more. Yeah. Well, what do teacher shortages stem from is a lack of pay in some cases. So just mm-hmm. you know, pay teachers more. That, yeah. that, that can be one of our solutions here. Paying, uh, paying teachers more would be solution. the solution, <laughs> I think, because in a lot of cases, you know, the reason part of the reason the working conditions are bad is that when you don't pay people much money, they have to take second jobs. They have to do other things. Or to... they go into other fields. Yeah. Um, also, uh, we really need to get a handle on uh, certification requirements in this country. Arizona did away with theirs, apparently, about a year and a half back uh, and are still experiencing a teacher shortage. So that's great. But meanwhile, in New York, I know that they changed in 2011 which is why all of the guidance that I was given in my first couple of years as to how to become a certified teacher went out the window as I was being given said guidance. And so by the time I tried to get certified, none of it was true anymore. But now, apparently after years of not enough people getting certified, they are rolling back some of those requirements because they realize that under these requirements, nobody will ever be able to become a teacher again. Oh, I mean, it was hard. I got a permanent certification, and I feel like it was hard then, and that doesn't even exist anymore. Right. And I went to think about, I was thinking about getting a second in uh, special ed, and it it, it changed from being like a K-12 certification Mm -hmm. to, you know, like a fifth through eighth or, Mm -hmm. you know, just Mm -hmm. high school, and it was so many more hours than it was previously for a lesser certification and i and i feel like a lot of this speaks to something that we actually said which is that there's too many cooks education has a huge too many cooks problem and the problem is that most of the people aren't okay this metaphor is about to go off the rails but most of these people are not cooks they're not actually in the kitchen they're they're people they're consultants or they're administrators or they're you know they're people who have to justify their jobs. Yes. Whereas you don't because it's yeah. plain to see that without teachers, you know, schools can't run. But. Right. And and so you get all of these people who I think get some weird joy out of inflicting that kind of uh, obsessive subcategorization on everything. Because it's, it's the same thing with the standardized test. It's the same thing with having this 70-page document that nobody's ever going to read of checkpoints for, you know, subjects and People love like numbers. <laughs> love math. That's why it's a required subject. <laughs> People like it so much. Uh, I, I feel like the two of you could probably go on for another hour, but this is all we have for today. So um, I'm Ryan. I'm Noah. I'm Nicole. This is Punching Out.
You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. <laughs>